each one of us is the sum of our experiences. You cannot make me trust people in general more because of the things that I went through in life. Trust is two-sided in that the level of trust I have in you is the product of your trustworthiness in my willingness to trust other people. I call it trustability. For me, as your boss, to give you autonomy, I need to trust you. For you, as my employee, to be willing to take risks and to be accountable to what you do, you need to trust me that I will never throw you under the bus if you fail. For us to have vulnerability, start with vulnerability. For me to be vulnerable with you and share with you some of the you know, things that you can ridicule me for, I need to trust you that you won't. For me to give you direct feedback, I need to trust that you're going to take it the right way. And for me to be receptive for that, for that kind of feedback from you, I need to trust you that this is where you're coming from. You're coming from a place of trying to help me. So if the level of trust I have in you is the product of my trustability and your trustworthiness, there's nothing you can do about the former, but there's anything you can do about the, the later. There is a very significant, very important part that the first time the first time that we meet has on building that trust. It's like you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So in the first impression, are you trustworthy or not? The, pro the problem with that is that as time goes by, your ability to turn the level of trust on a dime diminishes as well. So this is why it is so much easier to build trust than to rebuild trust. Life, one thing is certain. Time does not stand still. Everyone has a story to share. And your story is no less important than anyone's. Make today the day you move forward and take action. Don't let another day slip by. Your story isn't over. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Yoram Solomon. Yoram, you are an expert in trust, and I cannot wait to talk about this topic. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Roger. Look, I would love to start, if we can, about your upbringing uh, from Israel. I love Israel. It's somewhere uh, definitely on my uh, top three list of places I want to go to in the world. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing? Well, uh, born in Tel Aviv, right outside of Tel Aviv, actually. And uh, I think uh, an interesting story was that uh, I was asked when I got my U.S. citizenship, which was uh, just about 11 years ago, 
uh, I was asked by the interviewer, when was the first time that you were exposed to the United States? And uh, I thought, man, that's, that's an interesting question. I never thought about that. And I remember back in 1973, I was eight years old. Now you can do the math, you know, that I just turned 55, but uh, I was eight years old. This was the third day of the Yom Kippur War, uh, October of 1973. And this is right after I heard our Minister of Defense saying that this is going to be the end of the state of Israel. And, uh, you know, as a child, as an eight-year-old, you, you don't know how to take that and, and how to react. And all of a sudden, I hear this loud sound up in the sky. And I'm trying to understand what it is. This was the biggest plane I have ever seen. I've never seen. I've seen 747. That was bigger. And I look at that plane. It's a big, great plane. It has like 200 wheels underneath the, uh, coming in for landing in Tel Aviv. And under one of the wings was the sign U.S. Air Force. That was the first time that I saw something from the U.S. that I knew was from the U.S. So that's kind of how I was brought up. Uh, always had that preference because really the U.S. did bail us out in 1973. I don't know that we would have had the state of Israel uh, today if it wasn't for the support from the U.S. government, President Nixon at the time. And so... Uh, Grew up, served in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, uh, did five years of active duty and uh, 10 years of uh, reserves. And uh, that kind of, uh, that for, to some degree, that painted what my thinking is like even today. Okay. And tell us what happens from there. Where, where, where do you go on and how do you end up in the U.S.? Well, so first of all, I, uh, I worked, I, I, I started as an engineer. Uh, and I worked as an engineer for an Israeli company. Then I decided I'm going to start my own startup company. I started the startup company, held it for about three years. The technology we were using was far ahead of its time. Uh, it was called, well, at that time, it wasn't even called voice over IP. It was called internet telephony. It was kind of this weird thing that has low quality, but the potential of being very, very low cost. And I started, it was too early after three years, I closed that company. And I decided if I wanted to continue in technology, I needed to move to, uh, no offense, to the 408 area code. And uh, we moved to Silicon Valley, uh, my wife and myself. Uh, my wife was at that time six months pregnant uh, with our first daughter. And the first thing, the first lesson that I, that I learned when I landed in the U.S. in Silicon Valley was uh, if you... Uh, have 10 suitcases, don't rent a compact car. So it was really hard to squeeze the suitcases. That's before they started charging for 10 suitcases. We landed there. We started our lives there. I sold the company in Silicon Valley, started growing up in the company we sold it to, joined Texas Instruments still in California. And then uh, a year and a half later, I was asked to move here. So I moved to uh, Dallas. We moved to Plano, just north of Dallas. And uh, went on from there. And, uh, you know, the, essentially it was initially engineering. Then it was after I got my MBA, it became more in the business side of things. And uh, after I got my PhD, which was a major pivotal point for me, uh, when I got my PhD in organization and management, uh, the topic of my research really guided me to initially innovation culture and then trust. Okay. And that was my next question. 
is how did you choose this topic of trust? It's such an important topic. I'm so excited to share this with our audience today because everyone, no matter where you work or live, or whether it's family or friends, there's always the underlying factor of trust. And I love it. And just curious how you came upon that as being your, your work today. So you asked me the question, how did I choose trust? Uh, I think trust chose me. Uh, I didn't choose that topic. Uh, when I did my uh, PhD research, the, the question, the guiding question in my research was, why are people so much more creative when they work for startups than when they work for large, mature companies? I spent two years researching that. I did my study in the US, Canada, uh, China, Europe, and even Israel. And you know, if I had to boil down two years of research and 348 pages of a dissertation, I would boil it down to two words, innovation culture. And innovation culture, to me, if I had to define it, is the autonomy that a leader gives his or her employees. It is the accountability of those employees and their willingness to take risks and try things because they're doing it for the greater good of their company or organization. And it is the willingness of you and I at the same level, at the same team, to be willing to hold what I call a constructive disagreement. And for a constructive disagreement, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be willing to give direct feedback, and you have to be receptive to that kind of feedback. And when I started helping companies build that kind of culture, what I realized is for each one of those, for me as your boss to give you autonomy, I need to trust you. For you as my employee, to be willing to take risk and to be accountable to what you do, you need to trust me that I will never throw you under the bus if you fail. For us to have vulnerability, start with vulnerability, for me to be vulnerable with you and share with you some of the you know, things that you can ridicule me for, I need to trust you that you won't. For me to give you direct feedback, I need to trust that you're going to take it the right way. And for me to be receptive from that, for that kind of feedback from you, I need to trust you that this is where you're coming from. You're coming from a place of trying to help me. And so you start hearing the word trust, 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 trust. And I go, you know what? Maybe I need to start thinking about that. So I, I had for my business, uh, which initially was the Innovation Culture Institute, I started with this umbrella of innovation. But what I realized is if you want to start with innovation, it's like building a building starting at the second floor. It's not going to hold. So you start at the first floor, which is innovation culture. It's still not going to hold. You have to start with the foundation. The foundation is trust. And 20 of, I asked 20 of my closest friends, about two, three years ago, I asked 20 of my closest friends, what do you think? Should I stay the path of innovation culture or should I go to trust? 19 out of 20 said, stick with innovation culture. My gut told me, go with trust. And that's what I did. Wow, what a great lesson there, too, because I didn't expect you to say that. I thought you were <laughs> people were going to say go with trust, but you went with your gut. And that's another great lesson. Um, I actually had something happen to me within the last week. I had an intuition to go forward on an idea, and I didn't do it. Uh, I approached someone, and they, and they kind of poo-pooed it, and I, I let it go. And then it came out in the news, you know, last week. A year later. So I love that you said that to go that you went with your intuition and that it was the foundation of trust. You know, I'll, I'll share with you something that I tell my students because I teach I, I teach at uh, three universities. I'm an adjunct in three universities. One of them I'm teaching in right now. And um, 
I tell, and, and by the way, what, what I teach them is evaluating an entrepreneurial opportunity. So you have an idea, how can you evaluate that? And I, I give them uh, the rules that, that I kind of developed over years to how do you evaluate this idea. But one of the themes, one of the things that I keep on repeating with them is the only, the only person responsible for the success or failure of your idea and the only person responsible for evaluating it is you. You can get advice from everyone, but you're the only person responsible. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so let's dive deeper into this topic. And I'd like, if you can, give, to give us a couple of examples, because we could all relate to this. So what do people do if there is a barrier between yourself and your manager or senior leadership or even maybe people that report to you? If, what, what do people do if that trust factor isn't set? within the organization. Is there, is there anything that you can recommend where to start if it's, if it's broken or if it just doesn't feel right? Well, you know, I, I created a new model of trust. And uh, when, when you dive deeper into the model, you, you'll see why there is a very significant, very important part that the first time, the, the first time that we meet has on building that trust. It's like you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So in the first impression, are you trustworthy or not? The, pro the problem with that is that as time goes by, your ability to turn the level of trust on a dime diminishes as well. So this is why it is so much easier to build trust than to rebuild trust. And it's not that rebuilding trust is, uh, is not something that you can do. And, and in fact, just yesterday, I worked with a uh, very large organization. I had the top 150 uh, leaders in that organization. It's an organization with, I think, something like 16 or 18,000 employees, all in all. I worked with their leaders. And, you know, before doing that, I have my own assessments or the organization trust assessment, for example. And we went through that assessment and, you know, there, there are areas where you can improve. There are areas where trust doesn't work between you and somebody else. Here's the first thing. The first thing is, and, and I'm going to quote from one of my seven laws of trust, because over the years I developed those seven laws of trust. And this last one, actually, law number seven, is that trust is two-sided. Trust is two-sided in that the level of trust I have in you is the product of your trustworthiness and my willingness to trust other people. I call it trustability. And, you know, we are, each one of us is the sum of our experiences. You cannot make me trust people in general more because of the things that I went through in life. So if the level of trust I have in you is the product of my trustability and your trustworthiness, there's nothing you can do about the former, but there's anything you can do about the, the later. And so I tell people, when you have a trust issue, you cannot work on the other side. You can only work on yourself. And so ask yourself, and, and I, in, in that book, the book of trust that just came out last week, uh, I, I provided a seven step. I like the number seven. So I have the seven laws of trust, the seven steps to become trustworthy, and the six components of trustworthiness. I, I could not find the seventh one there. But... Uh, so through a seven-step process, the first one that I ask is find a relationship where you don't think that you're trusted enough. 
Then the second one is find out what you're doing that does not help build trust. Don't think about the other side. Think about you. And is this all self-reflection or is there any interaction with that person that you feel may not trust you? Oh, there, there's definitely interaction. In fact, when I look at the six components of trustworthiness, three of them, I call them the foundational or kind of the static element. So this is your competence, shared values, and fairness or symmetry. And so those exist even when you and I don't meet. But the other three, the other three exist during an interaction. So every time we interact is an opportunity to build trust or to destroy trust. And those three components are the amount of time we spend together, the intimacy of our spending time together. So for example, right now we are face-to-face -face as opposed to communicating over email or over text. So there's a lot of nonverbal value, especially in the area of emotions and feelings that I convey to you and that you convey to me that help us build that trust faster or, or even destroy that trust faster. And the last one is the positivity. And one of the things I did was I looked at a lot of research that was done before me and, and then I conducted some of my own research. A lot of what's in the book is, is my own original research. But what I found was that bad is much stronger than good. One of the examples that I give is when you look at reviews on, uh, I, I took the Better Business Bureau as an example, and you look at companies like, you know, I'm not going to tell you who the companies are, but I took four companies. Each one of them has average customer review of less than two stars. Most of them actually have less than one and a half star when the minimum is one star. You can't give zero. You, the minimum is one star. Here are four companies that have customer, average customer review of less than two stars or less than one and a half. And I ask people, I don't tell them who the companies are in my workshops or keynotes. I show them the reviews and I ask them, would you ever give your email account password to this company? Would you ever buy anything that cost a thousand dollars from this company? Would you ever board an airplane that is flown by an employee of that company? And would you ever buy anything from the fourth company? And they always say, no, 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 no. And then I showed them that the first one was Google, the second was Apple, the third one was Southwest Airlines, and the fourth one was uh, Amazon. And wow. the reason is because we are three times more likely to post a negative review if we had a negative experience than we are to post a positive review than we, if we had a positive experience. How does that relate? That's what I tell people. Instead of trying to do one more good thing in our relationship, eliminate one bad thing from our relationship. Great advice. Wow, that is really great advice. I'd like to stick on the topic, uh, as you were talking, of when the difference between text, email, and face-to-face. -face. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do to build trust with others is to become a better listener. So, for example, during this interview, I'm really trying to remain aware and present of your words, whereas in the past, I didn't. I was thinking about other things. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about being a good listener and how that may play in or impact trust. Well, so uh, you touch on a very powerful point, in fact. Uh, you know, there was a study, and, and I'm, I'm going to uh, start with a disclaimer. I'm, I'm going to mention the name of the study. We're going to immediately have 2.37% of your viewers saying, oh, no, he's not going to quote that study. So I'm not quoting it the way you think I am. 
Uh, Albert Morabian, back in 1968, his studies came up in uh, with Silent Messages, his book, 1971, and the eight, uh, the uh, 738.55 rule, uh, it, which is so misquoted. This is a misquoted rule because people quoted this as if communication is conveyed 7% through words, uh, 38% through uh, tone of voice, and 55% through body language. That's not what he said. That he actually went on an interview on BBC and said, this is not what I said, because he was really talking about feelings. Well, here's something that I did, an exercise that even yesterday at the workshop that I did, I did that exercise. I did, we played charades. And I said, I'm going to put a word on the wall behind me, on the screen behind me. In every pair, one of you has to have their back to the wall, to the, the screen. And the other has to tell them to, to try without using any words just to, you know, only using body language to try and convey that word. Well, the first one is I put the word trust, except I put it in Japanese. Okay, so nobody could, nobody could, I mean, they look at me with those blank stares. I, I don't know how to do this. Said, oh, okay, so you, you want it in English. So let's have English. So there is a word in the English dictionary that has 45 letters. It's actually the longest word and it describes some kind of a lung disease try and convey this. Well, they can't. And this, by the way, this was a healthcare organization. <laughs> the third word, I said, okay, so maybe 45 letters is too long for you. How about I'll give you a word with two letters. The word if. Can you convey the word if with your body language? Man, nobody. Nobody could convey it. I had 160 people there. Nobody can, can convey a two-letter word in English. Uh, and I said, I'll give you three more chances. One was the word happy. Can you convey happy with body language? Can you convey sad with body language? Can you convey angry with body language? You can convey emotions. Trust is emotional. Trust is based on emotion. And that's something that uh, is different in my model because other models just assume that I do one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven and eight, and, and therefore I will be trusted. No, trust is based on emotions. You cannot convey, well, I shouldn't say you cannot convey, but you can convey very little emotion over an email. So, you know, you can use emoticons and emojis and, and things like dot, 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 and, uh, you know, three question marks. You can convey some, not as much as you can convey face to face. And just like you said, when you're present. Awesome. That is wonderful. So what is so special about your model of trust? Why is this set apart from, you know, all the other models that are out there that we have, may have heard or seen along the way? So there are two things that are really unique in it. The first one is that this is the first model that says trust is relative. You know, we keep thinking that you do this, then you're going to be trusted. You do that, you're not going to be trusted. The, the bottom line is it's not. That, that's not the case. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you trust me? I do. That's the wrong answer. If I'm going to ask you to trust me with $10, and I do that all the time. Uh, I forgot my wallet at home. I need to fill gas in my car. I can't go home. Can you uh, lend me $10? I promise I'll send it back. You go, sure, $10. I, I'll trust you with $10. How about $100? How about $1,000? How about a million dollars? You're starting to feel uncomfortable now, I can see. Um, so the thing is that it's not that you trust me or you don't trust me. It's how much you trust me. So trust is uh, continuous. It's not contextual, which, by the way, is my first law of trust. 
But here's another interesting thing. Would you trust somebody who intentionally lies to you to your face? Okay, that's a universal value. Uh, would you trust somebody that knowingly puts himself or herself ahead of your interests all the time? You know that no matter what happens, their interests are ahead of your, yours. Not so much. I'm not even going to ask if you're a Democrat or a Republican, but would you trust the person from the other, uh, the other camp? You're going, I don't know. You know, there are certain values that we may not share. Okay, so which one of us is wrong, the Republican or the Democrat? The answer is none or both. But we are different in our perspectives. There are areas where it's not absolute anymore. It's relative. You know, an example that I gave, and, and it took vulnerability to give that example, is I showed a uh, review that I got. Have you ever heard of uh, the uh, website uh, Rate My Professors? No. So I never heard of that myself. And my older daughter, actually both of them are in college, but my older daughter was selecting a class, and she was doing that based on RateMyProfessors.com. And I'm like, what do you do? So students go and post reviews of their professors. And I thought, that's, that's genius. Do I have a page like this? And so we went and we looked, and I have a page like this. And I started to look, and all of a sudden, it hit me. I see this one review. So that was a review where the student said this professor was arrogant, condescending, full of himself. He used stories, his own stories, instead of uh, peer-reviewed literature and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm a terrible professor. And then you look at the next five, and the next five just gave me, and by the way, the, the, store, the score that he gave me, the rating he gave me, one out of five. The minimum is one. It says the title of one is awful. Okay, so I'm an awful professor. And then I look at the next five, and the next five give me all five out of five awesome. And they tell how, how involved I am and how I share all of my personal stories, and I'm so vulnerable by sharing my personal stories. And I go, wait, these six students, didn't take different classes with me. They took the same class at the same time. All six of them were sitting in front of me in those same lessons. How can they have such different perspectives? Well, because I work with you and it's just what my values don't work with the other person. Trust is relative. So that's one thing that makes my model very unique. The second one is that trust is dynamic. And we keep thinking of, uh, you know, uh, I'll build it over time. And, and we never think about every single interaction. Three of my six components of building trustworthiness focus on the every single interaction, like the one that we're having right now. That is an interaction. And, you know, one of the things uh, that um, Microsoft, I think it was 2013, they sponsored a study on attention span. And what they found was that between the year 2000 and 2013, our human's attention span dropped from 12 seconds down to eight seconds, while the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds, which brings up several questions. One is, why do we have only eight seconds? Two is, why did we drop from 12 seconds to eight seconds? And three, how exactly do you measure the attention span of a goldfish? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Brilliant. So look, okay, I, I have one question before I move on. And that is when, when you asked me if I trust you, and I said, yes, <laughs> why was that the wrong answer? 
It was the wrong answer because the question is, and you know, I don't want to give you a hard time, but it's the wrong answer because the question is, you trust me with what? Or you trust me how much? Okay. So uh, do you trust me? Um, you know, I, I can tell you a story that uh, back from my military days that will make you realize that you can trust me with your life. If I'm holding a weapon, if I'm holding a sniper rifle, you can trust me with your life. Can you trust me with other things? Can you try? And, and I'm not saying that I'm not trustworthy in other things, except uh, maybe uh, brain surgery. Would you trust me uh, operating on you or your brain? But you said you do. Right. You, I asked you if I trust, if you trust me and you said you do. The question is trust you with what? Okay. Trust you with what and trust you how much? So th th that's why, uh, you know, I'm giving you a hard time uh, when you said uh, I trust you. The answer is no. By the way, I'll tell you one more thing. You trust me, and I'm not even going to say if it's more or less, but at a different level now than you did when we started talking. That's the dynamic nature of trust. Amazing. That leads me to my next question, which I think many, many people go through on a daily basis, and that is how we connected, and it's getting receiving messages through LinkedIn or other social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook. How do people trust each other? That's one of the things I've been working on, actually, is my responses to people, uh, definitely not trying to sell something when I reach out. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's how can I be of service to you? Like for me, to be able to connect with you today with all of your knowledge and experience, to talk about your book and your career and everything else, that, that has a lot of meaning to me because I know this content will benefit people, right? But the question is, how do I how do I even approach that? And, and it took a lot of trial and error for me to get to the place where I am now, which is definitely don't sell anything, be of service. So my service to you is saying, look, I have a podcast and I want to help broadcast your message because I know at the end of the day, other people are going to benefit from it. Um, how do you agree with that? I guess, first of all, and then how do you help others see the best way to interact, the best way to trust, the best way to form relationships through social media. So you brought a very powerful point. And I actually did talk about that in the book, in, in the book of trust. Um, here's, here's the deal. Pardon my language, you got screwed by a lot of other people that abused that tool. Uh, my fifth law of trust is trust is transferable. So here's something, you call someone out of the blue, uh, it's a cold call, whether it's on LinkedIn, Facebook, or anything else, it's a cold call. And uh, we got burnt on cold calls. I was, by the way, my answer to you was going to be, oh, I'll tell you how to do that. I'll sell you a $6,000 program that would help you reach out people and grow your funnel and turn your, your connections into dollars. The thing is, it became so commercialized, it became so emotionless and, and really so without any foundation that uh, we just, our trustability went down. By the way, an interesting thing, uh, a study that was done by Pew Research in, uh, it was last year, compared different generations. And so the, uh, the baby boomers, which I'm not a baby boomer by eight days, but the ba baby boomers, if you ask them the question, if you pose the statement, most people cannot be trusted only 29% of them would say, I agree, most people cannot be trusted. Only 29%, 60% of millennials 
60% those ages 18 to 26 would say most pro, uh, people cannot be trusted. But, but this is what they got exposed to. You know, I'll, I'll give you an, another example. Here is another one of my pet peeves. Uh, did I in any, at any time on my website or anywhere said that I'm an Amazon best-selling author? I did not. You know why? Because the way other people say I'm a best-selling author is by doing this. Take your book, turn it into Kindle. On Kindle, you can, sell, you can offer it for free. Offer it for free. Tell all of your friends to get on Kindle and buy your book. Ten of them will buy your book in the next five minutes. Your book jumps up to uh, number one bestseller. Take a screenshot from that moment on. Claim that you're a best-selling author. Here's what I'm going to challenge you. Every time you see somebody saying, I published this book, I'm a best-selling author, go immediately to Amazon and see where that book ranks. See if that book ranks less than the millionth number. So we use all those tools. And as a result, when I get your message, I look at it and I go, what are the odds that this is real? What are the odds that this person is just trying to offer value instead of trying to get something out of me? The probability is very low. There's another story. It's a long story that I can tell you where I got a message that actually had the uh, headline, um, the White House. And it starts with, dear friend, you are hereby invited to a meeting of the business council of the White House at the White House on December 18th. This was back in 2013. Um, and somebody is going to call you to ask for your social security number to set for, uh, for uh, uh, your, your uh, security uh, uh, background check. And so you're, I'm looking at you right now and, and you're nodding with your head. It's like, would you even respond to that email? Okay, it was a real email, and I ended up on December 18 at the White House in a full day meetings of the business council. But you're looking at an email that starts with "Dear friend, for crying out loud, you're inviting me to the White House. You don't even know my first name." And we were so conditioned by other people who are just abusing these tools. Here's a, I'm going to give you, and so I, I wrote in that book why cold calls don't work. Uh, it's it's a short. It's not even a chapter. It's a short part of a chapter. It's like two pages long. But essentially what I said is this. When you reach out to me and I don't know you, I don't know anything about you. Uh, and by the way, the worst, the worst type is when you reach out to me, like immediately, you need a, a response immediately. So this would be a phone call. I don't know anything about you. Nobody ever said anything about you. I didn't do any research. What do you think is your starting point trust level? It's zero. In fact, you're doing things that others are doing, and I know that they are that they don't have my best interests in mind, and therefore I don't trust you either. This is my trustability, remember? But what if you reached out to me through someone who I know? Here's when you get an invitation, somebody is inviting is asking you to add them to your LinkedIn, LinkedIn network or to your Facebook to be a Facebook friend. What's the first thing that you do? You look at how many people do we have in common? Right. And you look at them and you go, well, this one, he just accepts everyone. And she, uh, she accepts everyone. He doesn't. And I trust this person. If this person is willing to be your friend, maybe you're not such a bad person. The other thing is you gave me the opportunity since the way you reached out to me was not, I'm reaching out to you and I need your response right now. I got you on the phone. You gave me the opportunity to check you out. You gave me the opportunity to check your 
Component number one, competence. Are you competent? So I started looking at your videos. This is why I knew how most of your videos are set up and so on. And who do you interview and what do you typically talk about and, and so on. That's a different level of establishing that relationship. So cold calling, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you out of the blue. Again, you get screwed by millions of people ahead of you that really reached out to me or to anybody else just to get benefit for them with absolutely no regard to what I get out of it. Wow. There was something in your message that made me say, mm, let's check this one out. Okay. Okay. So I'm on the right track. Yes. <laughs> and it is, it's difficult. And I want to help others, you know, whatever industry they're in. I, I like your idea of the referral. That's really powerful because it's coming from someone of trust, you know, within, within that network. And even if it takes a longer time to build your network, it's yeah. stronger, right? That foundation is stronger. Um, you know, I, I, I have a very small uh, following, if you will, at this point, but I've only been focused on it, say, the last two to three months. But even from our conversation right now, I want to work even harder to build a solid foundation of trust and connect with people uh, through relationships. So that's a, that's a very great tip that, that you just provided. And, and you know, even though your starting point is text, text only, it is a message only. Actually, I, I can give you another idea if, if you want to hear it. But uh, even if your starting point is text only, there is, when I talk about intimacy, the chapter that talks about intimacy uh, talks about the body language of email. And emails do have their body language and it's the content and it's the wording because I'm, I'm starting in my brain. I'm starting to fill in other elements of uh, what you're telling me. Uh, and I'm starting to get a sense of you, even though I never met you. Here's another possibility. It's a small one. What if you, when you reached out to someone, reached out with a video recording, you have the equipment. But you start with, uh, you know, and, and it's not a five-minute video recording about, uh, oh, I'm going to sell you this program and that program. It's, hi, this is, I'm Yoram, and uh, all I want to do is I want to reach out to you, and I want to, uh, I want to give you value. I want to put you on my program so you'll get value. I'll tell you up front. I'm not charging you any money. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm trying to give you a platform because that helps me, that helps you, and that helps everybody else. I can see the sincerity in a video a lot more than I can in an email. Absolutely. I love that. And especially if you use the person's name, they know it's in that moment specific to them. It's not a generic video. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. All those messages you get on uh, Facebook and uh, sometimes on LinkedIn where, uh, you know, somebody's telling you about something terrible that's going for them. And at the end it says, just copy and paste it on your page. And you go, man, this did not happen to them. They just copied and pasted. And, and this was not really a message for me. This is a message they're, they're sending to everybody else. Whereas when the message starts with, hi, Yoram, I'm going, okay, this is the video that was recorded for me, period. This is not a uh, happy birthday video that you recorded in general and you're just sending it to everyone. When you said happy birthday, Yoram, I'm like, okay, this person just took one, two, five minutes of their time to do something only for me. It's not something that they can reuse because, uh, well, they can only reuse it with other people named Yoram. <laughs> and, but uh, 
That little thing, that little thing can be the make or break. Uh, by the way, I have a $6,000 program to sell you on how to build. <laughs> exactly. I well, don't. And, and this is exactly why I love doing these interviews because we just had a great conversation, very natural. Nothing was scripted. You know, we had a few topics of, that we wanted to cover and, and we covered them. Uh, now we're going to get into your book a little bit more specifically because look, I want people to support you. I want people to read the reviews for your book. I want them to look inside and, and see what, what might be in there, but then hopefully they take that next step and purchase the book because it will help them. And I'd like for you to tell us, how will your book help? How, how would it help me? How will my book help you? Uh, first of all, uh, you will, if, if you have paper on your table that's like flying around, you can put it. It's a heavy book, 334 pages. It can hold the... the <laughs> wow. uh, that would be one use of the book. But uh, really, this book is the... Uh, and I'll tell you something. This book was, uh, was in me for several years, for about five years. Right before this book, uh, last year, I published three books. Those are mini books. Each one of them has 100 pages, and they're called Can I Trust You? All of them are called Can I Trust You? Uh, the subtitle of the first one is 70 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy leader. The next one is 67 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy team member. And the last one is, last one currently, because I'm, I keep on writing those, 50 plus one habits that will make you a trustworthy salesperson. And essentially what I do is I deconstruct this model six components and for every one of those kind of relationships leader to follower team members uh employee to their boss salesperson i deconstruct those six and apply them to that specific relationship and with that specific with every specific relationship you get 50 uh, 67 or 70 different habits that you can adopt each one of them is one page. I even accompanied them uh, on my YouTube channel with videos, one-minute videos. And so if, if instead of reading the book, you want to see a watch a video, it's a one-minute video and, uh, and you're done. You've got that, that habit. Uh, but, you know, chronologically, let's say the right order of things should have been write the big book, explain everything. Because in a 100-page book with large font, mini book with large font, right? Uh, I can't convey the, uh, call it the wisdom, the theory, the uh, research, uh, the, uh, the stories behind what I have, what I know today. But that wasn't the intention of those books. And those books, by the way, sell like crazy because people today really want to get down to the point. Okay, so give me the habits. Just give me the habits. Don't worry about anything else. Give me the habits. And so I give them the habits and, uh, and they're happy. They, they buy these books like crazy. But I felt that I did need at some point to write the big book, to write the book that puts it all together. So if you're someone who says, you know what, and, and this is where trust comes into play again. If you heard me speak and you heard me speak on your uh, show, uh, people at the audience heard me speak in, on your show and um, you we built a certain level of trust, or let's say I built a certain level of trustworthiness for you to say, I'm going to skip the book. I'm going to go into the three mini books, mini books. And, uh, and I'm, I just want the habits. But if you want to know, if you are more curious, if you are more 
you, you want to know really where it's coming from. You know, you, you've heard too many theories and, and you go, okay, now I, I understand those habits, but I want to know where he's coming from. That is the book. Uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, in this book, there's a lot of research that was done by others. So I summarize research. Heck, I, I summarize research that happened in the 1920s that is still applicable today, that's, that's uh, forever going to be applicable. Uh, I summarized research that happened last year when I started writing this book. This book take, it took eight months to write. Um, but, uh, and it has 86,608 words. But um, the other thing is it includes a lot of original research that I've done. And I interviewed several people. So, for example, the introduction to this, it's actually not the introduction as it is the foreword. The foreword to this book was written by someone who was a fighter pilot during the Korean War, the Vietnam War. He was a uh, top gun instructor. He flew for the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. Wait, it gets better. When he flew over Vietnam in one of the missions over Vietnam, he was shot down. And he spent seven years as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam in a place that is known as the Hanoi Hilton, which, by the way, I checked is one of the lowest ranking Hiltons in uh, the chain. Uh, but uh, that was a joke. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he was a seven-year POW. He came back to the U.S. broken, really. Uh, and he decided that he needs to serve in other ways. He, uh, first, he came back to Texas. Uh, he first, he served in the state legislature, and then he spent 27 years in the U.S. Congress. He retired only last year. He wrote the introduction. But I interviewed for that book, I interviewed a U.S. Air Force pilot who flew a KC-135. So in case you, know, you don't know what a KC-135 is, think a 707 with 200,000 pounds of jet fuel flying in the air at 25,000 feet, waiting for fighter jets to come in and get refueled. He flew that. He flew into the jet wash of another KC-135 in front of him. And if you saw Top Gun, you know what happens when you fly into a jet wash, except this is not an F-14. You're flying a passenger jet, essentially. It got into such wild maneuvers that at some point he got indications of uh, fire in both uh, left engine, uh, left wing engines. He sent the, the uh, boom operator to eyeball the engines. Boom operator comes back and says, good news, bad news. Good news, there is no fire from the engines. Bad news, there are no engines under the left wing. So here you're flying a, a 707, 200,000 pounds of uh, jet fuel, no engine under one wing. And the, the crew looks up to him and says, do we bail? because there is an option of bailing out of a KC-135. He looks at them, he's the captain of that flight, and he says, stick with me, we'll be fine. Put yourself in their shoes. Do you trust him? And so I deconstructed that story. I sat with him and interviewed him to see why did they, because they did trust him to land. This is Kevin Sweeney, by the way, uh, that's his name. Uh, and he has a website and he tells this story uh, in keynotes. I interviewed um, a fire department chief, a police department chief, one of Israel's leading divorce attorneys. You'll, you'll be surprised. Number one reason, by the way, why uh, relationships break is trust, lack of trust. Uh, but the trust between the spouses, the trust between that person and the divorce, the divorce attorney. 
uh, I interviewed people all, all over to get a sense of how do you build trust. So if you want to get to the depth of trust, a new model of trust that is both relative, assumes that everything is relative, it's not absolute or universal, and that trust is dynamic, a model that shows you in seven steps, how do you kill one bad habit that will make you more trustworthy once you kill it, uh, then that's the book. That's, that's the value that you get out of it. Wow, Yoram. And again, for everyone, this is, these are tools that everyone can use. And, and for myself, I, now I'm, I'm really excited to get your book because it's something I'm always trying to get better at, whether it's at, with my family relationships, with my wife, with my kids, with my parents, with my core, and then expand it from there. Trust is so important to me as a human, and I want to pass on these lessons to others. So I can't wait to read your book. You know, and I'll add one more thing, especially since, since you said family and you said spouse. Uh, here's something interesting. Here's a study that I did in 2018. It wasn't a study. It was more of a survey. I asked people, what is the most important quality for you in other people? I can't ask this question anymore. I mean, heck, you look and, and you see behind my shoulders the word trust. So I can't ask you, what is the most important quality when you look behind me and in orange, in, in burned orange, it says trust. But back in 2018, when I was still dabbling with that question, do I continue with innovation or do I go with trust? I asked that question. What is the most important quality for you in other people? I gave six types of people. Uh, it was your boss, your employee, your peer or colleague, a salesperson trying to sell you something, a government representative, or your spouse. And I asked, what is the most important quality for you in those people? 306. Well, first of all, I got different answers. I combined, I consolidated them into five, the top five that I heard the most, that most things consolidated into. And then I asked 363 participants to take a survey. And I asked them this question, this time giving them only those five options and uh, across the six different types. These are the five, hab the, the five uh, qualities your willingness to work hard, your willingness to take risk, your trustworthiness, intelligence, and good looks. I know, you're laughing. 0.83% of my participants, which is three in 363, said good looks was the number one quality for them in another person. Scary, 61.2% said it was trustworthiness, which is more than the next four combined, but not across all six types of people. Amazing. Not across all six. On average, it was trustworthiness. For one type of relationship, it wasn't. Wow. When I asked leaders about their employees, what is the most important quality? Number two was trustworthiness with 39% and with 47.5%, number one was the willingness to work hard, which brings up something that Henry Ford once said. He said, he asked, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with the brain attached? That's, <laughs> it's 2020, we still think that way. Isn't that something? Wow, Yorm. This is, this is fantastic. Look, I cannot thank you enough for all of what you shared today. A uh, lot of golden nuggets in there. Uh, I do have one last question for you before I let you go, if that's okay, and I ask every guest. At the end of the day, when you're done with your work here on this earth, what do you want your legacy to be? What do I want my legacy to be? You know, it, it's funny because I did think about that question uh, in the past. Uh, someone once asked me, uh, what would you like written on your tombstone? And uh, 
so I, I thought about that and I came up, I have two options. I have plan A and plan B. Plan A, what I want written on my tombstone is he inspired me. I served on the Plano Independent School District Board. I got elected. This is a thankless job and, and, and that doesn't pay, by the way, and, and I loved it. I, I served on a lot of boards. I teach a lot, not for the money. I do this because I'm passionate about this, because I want to inspire people. I want at the end of the day for somebody, for somebody to say, I am trusted more today, or I trust somebody else more today because of something that I read or saw Yoram say. That's plan A. Plan B, my hobby is radio-controlled airplanes. And so plan B, uh, the first person to be killed in a radio-controlled airplane accident. Okay. <laughs> I'll stick with plan A. Yes, stick with plan A. Yoram Solomon, you have inspired me today. Thank you so much. And I know you've inspired our guests. Thank you so much. How do people reach you if they want to get in contact? Well, first of all, thank you. I enjoyed being here with you. I enjoyed spending, spending this time with you. Uh, in terms of uh, reaching out, uh, the easiest thing is go to our website, uh, either trustbuildinginstitute.com or trust21000.com. Or you can text the word trust to 21000. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn, not on LinkedIn, on Twitter and on Instagram with trust21000. There is a theme there. Yoram Salman, thank you so much. Folks, get uh, the Book of Trust, which just came out, and I'm sure that's available on Amazon. And uh, thank you again. Welcome to the American Real family. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You could reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me and podcast your passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.